welcome and I'm delighted to be joined today by Shiva Sen from Hasem Ventures. Hi Shiva. Hi, hi Raf, hi everyone. Welcome to the show. How do you go from Oxford University law degree to uh, financing reforestation in India? <laughs> So uh, the short answer to that is this, there's no straightforward route to doing that. I can I can safely say that I had a high sort of level idea in my mind what I wanted to do. And then things emerged and kind of I fell into places. What, by high level, I meant I, I did law and I practiced as a corporate lawyer in, in London for three years. I traveled the world with that and I learned a lot about how to make deals happen. But what was clear to me, even at that, point was this was not something I could do for the rest of my life. I saw it as a stopgap. I also saw it as a great place to learn things and learn about different people, learn about business, save some money. I think that was very important if I wanted to change course. And at that time, this is sort of in my early 20s, mid 20s, I all I knew was I, I wanted to come back home, that's to India, and make myself more useful by the skills and the education that I've had and did not limit myself to law. Along with that, I also vaguely knew that I wanted to work in rural India, primarily because I myself, I would say I'm a country girl. I love the countryside. Intellectually, I felt rural India was uh, lacking in inputs and uh, it could I could add real value there. So a combination, This these were sort of my, I would say, guiding stars, these two things, and I didn't really know much else how I could work. So things started to fall. Uh, I, I mean, it's only in the hindsight you're saying, oh, things started to fall in place, but at the time it doesn't feel like that. Started to work with coffee farmers. I came back home after England and I went to Bombay and I met a couple of friends and it turned out that they were working with coffee at the time, this is about 11 years ago, looking at farm to coffee supply chains, cutting the middlemen out and bringing small organic coffee farms that didn't get represented otherwise be represented and raise that awareness. So in this, uh, I got involved in this and my role was to actually go and hunt out these coffee farms, and stay at their farms, figure how they were growing coffee and look at other working conditions at the farm and to understand how their business might be trickling down right at the bottom of the pyramid looking at the coffee workers on these estates. My favorite part of this work was actually spending time at the coffee farm so that reinstated that I I love being in the countryside. And and the second thing I realized during this time was that the coffee farmers in India are actually pretty well off economically. And it was the coffee workers on these estates that got an intergenerational poverty. The, The money just wasn't trickling down. So whether it was quality education or quality healthcare or any other opportunities for gender advancement, quality of women, it was really the same generation after generation. And they were dependent only on the coffee estate to live their life. And I think it was during that time that I had the luxury of delving deeper into these questions and figure that why that was happening, how I might play a role in this, what is needed to change these things. With no ready answers, of course, they were only questions. As always at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, 
that continues, Raf, even right now in my work. There are definitely many more questions and very clear answers. So, you know, spending time in these estates and working with coffee workers, it was more clear to me that I definitely wanted to work in rural development in India. And what that could look like was something I started to intentionally figure out using this opportunity. So after spending a year in this initiative, I got an opportunity to go to the north of India in the foothills of Himalayas. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's also an area that I spent a lot of time growing up in India. So it was like full circle for me. And I pounced on it. And I got an opportunity to work with a grassroots uh, non-profit that had been functional in the area for over 25 years and was working directly with rural communities in areas of promoting more local livelihoods, bringing access to more quality education with uh, young mothers and young children on malnutrition. So across the board, I took that on despite the odds. Uh, it was placed in a very remote part of the Himalayas in India, but that served as a very, very fertile ground for me to learn the ABC of how change may or may not happen. So I'd say that was really the turning point in my journey. I spent five years in that organization, and that's where I started to form my own ideas about how development projects are designed, how they're funded, who participates, how they're evaluated, how the communities respond, how might I want to do things differently, though not clearly how, but I I knew that I wanted to do things differently. And that was sort of the launching pad for me to then get into climate-related work, rural communities, rural economies are very intimately tied up with land and climate change. They're mm -hmm. uh, at the forefront of being uh, affected by it. Well, we all are now, but those are very fragile economies with not much resilience built into that. Mm -hmm. So I got into that, got in, started with reforestation in a social enterprise called Alap, where we did relatively smaller scale reforestation project and now have transitioned into Hasten Ventures where we're doing more meaningful scale projects for climate uh, and ecosystem restoration and economic development and I can talk about that. I don't want to make it very dull, you see. These things are pretty heavy. <laughs> I'm trying to see like how it's not boring. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not boring. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, solving big challenges like this is something that everyone, every company and everyone has to have kind of at the front of their mind as we build products and services moving forward. So you're you're kind of on the edge uh, or you're at the leading edge, certainly in, in the Himalayas of, of these kind of activities. You mentioned something that I um, haven't really given much consideration to in the past. And well, first of all, I didn't realize there's too much coffee in India. I'm uh, getting my coffee from other countries. I always think of tea when I think of India. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you can, you know, put me right on that one. But in intergenerational poverty, so this yeah. concept of basically you're caught in a in a trap, essentially, you're, you are afforded opportunities, but are you saying that the, the opportunities of working on the coffee farm really only makes the coffee farmer richer and there's no real way to, to escape that kind of hamster wheel? That's right. The way it is, um, well, when I studied it and the way it was designed, mm -hmm. in the majority of these coffee farms, it was, it was working in the favor of the state owner. Mm -hmm. almost entirely and the farmers only had as much livelihood security as much the estate could offer them yeah and that's it there was no resilience there were no buffer zones built into it with other alternative or more diverse opportunities in that area in that region that could offer other alternatives so how can how can we break these cycles obviously landowners own 
you know, the product production, I guess, and they have a lot of control. We often see things like Rainforest Alliance or, or Fair Trade on products, you know, that we buy as consumers, and we think we're doing our bit to help help alleviate poverty. Does that trickle down to, to the workers? Yeah, so in some cases, when there are incentives built in for that, like, say, the Rainforest Alliance, mm-hmm. yes, it does. It makes a huge difference. It's just not covering so many more, say, in this state, in, in, in the case of coffee, there's so many estates still not part of that alliance, for example. There are, they do not have the incentive to do more than what they're doing for their workers because the prices, the commodity prices, the supply chain, the middlemen, mm-hmm. the way the economics of that commodity, which is coffee, the way it would work, did not incentivize the estate owner to do anything else. So this really kind of flags the importance of people kind of trying to understand where the products they, they're coming from and how they're, how they're kind of raised. So the farm to cup you know, model you just mentioned having a better understanding of of where your products are coming from does actually trickle down to 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 good projects yes it does trickle down and, and when we talk about deforestation or regeneration i mean these are all parts of incentivizing the right thing so everyone in the ecosystem is actually responsible i mean right from the consumers up until coffee producer the coffee worker and the commodity buyers the way it's traded the whole system it's a systemic issue Raph, right yeah and that's with everything. I mean, that's with land degradation as well. I mean, look at how, how people can make money out of mining. Mm-hmm. It's sheer extraction. But how difficult it is for us right now to make a business case for making money out of healing the planet. And that's the work that you're doing, you know, I think that's very interesting is how do you turn something, you know, with good intentions uh, into, into something that's linked into financial product that allows you to channel more finance and more resources into something that makes money for people so it's not just a philanthropic enterprise it's actually something that can be a profit maker for people as well as improving the environment the work uh, you were doing with the ngo was working in collaboration with villagers to plant trees on behalf of of big corporations and that's something i know that you've taken into your work with hasten ventures so what were the real takeaways from that experience yeah so you know planting trees is like 10 percent of the job when you mm-hmm. need to work on climate change and regeneration and don't get me wrong it still takes a lot of fine tuning and coordination to get that work done properly and you know things like what trees are being planted where are these being planted are the right trees being planted at the right places who is planting them what kind of skilling and employment you're creating what's the security of that employment is it seasonal can women be included is there a place for young people in there and who's going to maintain these trees and why what's the economics around it, how much are the corporations willing to pay for this, and so on and so forth. So this this is one universe of work that happens. But what my biggest takeaway was that this is only 10% of the work, because the majority of efforts now need to go into place to ensure that these trees remain standing. Mm. And maintaining and protecting these trees is one aspect of that. Yes, you hire people, you fence the place, and you water the trees, and you look after them for X number of years. Till, till the forest is on its way. But what is to say that this forest again would not be cut 10, 15 years from now if the root causes of the degradation, the, the degenerating loops of the local economy mm-hmm. are such that the local people in order to meet their basic needs have no choice but to cut these trees again. And True. that is the real work in my view. And that was what led 
to the transition from my social enterprise to Hasten Ventures because we are in the business of restoration and economic development. Restoration is how you initiate work in a community, in a region. You try and bring some sort of equilibrium to that place that has no water or the soil is eroding. There's large-scale degradation, deforestation. You start with restoration activities because there is financing available for that with its, mm-hmm. with its own gaps. We can talk about that, but it is, it's being acknowledged that we need to do this work. It's a straightforward, quick way to create direct employment locally. And it sort of starts to, starts, as I said, starts to create some sort of equilibrium there by, you know, whether it's temperature control or moisture in the soil. But very quickly, after first two, three years of this work in a region, and, you know, we invest in a region for anywhere from 10 to 12 years at the bare minimum, you start to see that what are the other economic engines that we can start to put in place in this region that are aligned with this restoration activities and better still can move the needle towards regeneration and abundance of natural resources. And, and Raf, that's where we need to talk about regenerative work as well. It's not just planting trees. It's about having economic engines in a region that are aligned with nature completely drawing more and more capital into that so a lot of philanthropic capital now increasingly finance capital can be invested in the restoration activities but how much of it is acknowledged that we need to uh, invest in economic engines in the same region well, yeah, because there's you know no end of demand for good quality carbon credits right now. We've seen what's happening with carbon prices, and people, you know, many corporations are looking uh, to to purchase more and try and offset some of their existing operations that perhaps you know and 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 for other reasons. But you know, how are we going to accelerate the number of projects so that the the supply can start to to meet that demand? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean that's one big challenge. But before we even look at the increasing the supply you know i think we need to um, delve deeper into what is a good quality project i mean how are people defining a good quality project right now most projects in the space of reforestation in the space of regenerative agriculture mostly talk about planting more trees on the ground and there's been a lot of movement and i would say progress in terms of understanding that biodiversity is important that native species are important that so work is important, which say are the lessons that we've learned from the kind of projects that were being done in the 1990s, early 2000s. But then what? We yeah. plant these <laughs> right, right. Is, that's good quality. Yes, it's incremental. But then what? I mean, when you when you look at it from the impact point of view, Raf. I mean, you can get your carbon credits out of planting the right trees in the right place. Of course, you can, right? But what happens in that region? You're not changing much. Yeah. Definitely incremental progress. But because those trees might most likely will cut get cut down again or the survival rate might be poor because what are the economics attached to these trees right uh, people are poor yeah. most areas where this is being done they need some sort of medium to long-term financial security investment if you're getting you know suddenly you've increased production of fruit in a region or not suddenly say over a course of three to eight years you've increased the fruit production people will go and sell that in their local markets yes that will help again incrementally increase the local income levels mm-hmm. but your fuel production is still unresolved for your 
agricultural large-scale practices are still sort of the same and you might uh, marginally increase your income but that's not really changing the state of that region much yeah. instead if thought that, okay, how do we now invest in this region to make use of this abundance in a way that it exponentially brings about change and creates way for further investment in this region? Completely. So that, how... So how that, that, I don't, that I don't see much right now in yep. these kinds of projects. There are a few people who are talking about that, very few. Mm-hmm. And how we do that is by doing rough. There's no other way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got to do it. We've got to show it. We've got to make a case for it. We've got to share it. We've got to have more and more uh, build this community where I mean hasten no matter you know how big at least in terms of impact I'd like to think we get we're still one entity right so the idea is to build this thought process share these learnings and learn from others as well and do this as fast as we can in the next two to three years and show a case for this so so your work is uh, is not in your mind it's, it's not just about creating you know products that can help you know improve the environment but it's really around the whole business model surrounding that to ensure yeah. that you're lifting up the whole community around it and not and not creating something that's just not going to last right that's right it's about regenerative economic development amazing so I'd love to know more about the projects that you're currently working on uh, with Hasten, particularly the stuff that you're doing in the foothills of the Himalayas. Right now we have a, um, a few projects in our pipeline, one of which is in the Himalayas. We've got uh, a couple others in the drylands of India and the western state, the desert state of Rajasthan. We've got a small project brimming in Ethiopia as well. In the in the Himalayas, we've right now been looking at native and the degraded common lands there. So as I said, that restoration activity is, is it's a great place to start working with the community in a region. So we've that's ongoing for this project already. So, you know, we've planted over 100,000 trees and we carry on that activity. Now, in picking up from what I said, ultimately our work is one of regenerative uh, economic development. We already started to uh, ideally, uh, you know, started to identify technologies that we can, in a way, couple with reforestation work. So say, for example, we are looking at production of electricity through biofuels. In particular, specific to this project, we have a huge issue of invasive pine species spread across the region, across this whole state uh, of Uttarakhand in the Himalayas, where the needles, when they fall from the trees, are highly inflammable, and they are the biggest cause of forest fires. So in a way, any restoration activity here is meaningless until we mitigate the risk of the fires when working ideally across the state. Looking at this issue, we are exploring how might we use gasification uh, and pyrolysis to feed these pine needles as a stock feed to then produce electricity uh, that can be fed back into the grid and also have a byproduct of biochar, which again, when put back into soil, which can be enough forestation activities, uh, locks the carbon in for a long time and increases the water retention capacity of the soil, thereby reducing the need to water our forests. So this is one loop, for example, that we're looking at. Now, in order to do this, we're working out financial models of this. We're seeing what's the investment needed and what's 
what's in it for the investor and how can this be made viable. And what it does is that this firstly ties in very nicely with while you're increasing the forest cover, you're mitigating the risk of forest fires. It's imperative to do that. Secondly, this is the economic engine that is regenerative, what I was mentioning previously, that is needed in this group to go along with restoration activity. Because this is now creating more jobs. It's creating, uh, a, you can potentially at its most idealized state, an industry for, yeah. for biofuel. I mean, some of the benefits you're talking about, obviously water, water, precipitation is like a, one of the major ones I'd imagine if you're not having to to water you know baby trees etc but the you know we had on this show the power of biodigestion we we, we covered um, recently uh, with yeah. a chat with Ben from ATEC and that in itself means that presumably clean cooking and and other other energy is is being derived from something that otherwise would as you say be an invasive species that would be damaging to the project itself and yes. hopefully can prevent also villagers and locals from feeling the need to chop down these trees that are being planted anyway. Yeah, I mean, if the right incentives, the right price points, the right product, if it's put in place, eventually these things fall into place because no one is out there to destroy their own, you know, ecology. Of course. Yeah. I mean, all of us, none of us would do that if we didn't have, uh, well, some of us might do, but yeah, but most of us wouldn't. So so this is one example uh, of the kind of activity that we would bundle with, say, reforestation. Then at the same time, we would then start to move from common lands, community lands into farmland. In a place like India, usually we are working with very small farm holdings, which is true for most of the developing world. So this sort of a thought process that we would bring in our projects in India or in Africa would be applicable in most places where we deal with small farm holdings. Mm -hmm. And we then start to design that what are the things in addition to the farming activity that is happening now that can bring in more resilience, diversity, and uh, income opportunities to farmers. Also meet needs like their fuel, uh, how we can move that away from wood and say fodder and so on and so forth. So start tying in these designs. So, I mean, as a, you know, as a project developer Mm -hmm. in the space of regeneration, our job is to have have a systems lens to the area that we're working in. It's not about just looking at one kind of technology that is the answer but it is about the right mix of technologies methodologies and incentives and to model that financially eventually to make this project as a whole investable and that creates real and long-term impact so we would do that with farmland solutions common land solutions forest solutions energy solutions water distribution solutions over time and that's why Rafa, I said that, you know, you start with restoration activities, but you start making a case for these economic engines that meet the basic needs of the community, puts a new economic activity into place, draws in more investment. For that, we give ourselves a minimum 10 to 12 years of time. We're dealing with an area anywhere between 100,000 to 200,000 hectares in this Mm -hmm. time period. In the sense, uh, the idea is that just with, with an amount like that over a decade, you know, we can actually transform regions. Yeah, 
I, I mean, that's that's what it's about, and it's, it sounds like it's an extremely holistic approach that that, that you're taking. Because I know, I guess we're we're so used to everyone specialising, everyone being experts in very narrow fields. But what we're talking about is ecology and and economies and and things, and they're complex, interrelated systems. So the approach that you, it sounds like you guys are very holistic in 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 how you're working with the community and with the environment. That's right, and with that comes its own challenges because that's not how we work right now, you know, mm. and that's also not how we think right now. Most of the investment would go into, say, a company with a solution. Yeah. But how do you transform a region that you invest over in over a decade? It will need a combination and multiple sets of different sort of interdependent solutions. But when is it? Is it when is it investable? Is it investable? Are you looking for people to kind of lead these investments who are landowners who want to see a return from from the conversion into carbon credits and things? Or how do how does a project get going from you know because there is there is a sort of a a, a big amount of supply uh, demand, but not not enough supply. It seems. Yeah. So so right now the way carbon markets are are organized, it's very difficult to pencil out these projects just with carbon revenues. So you can only do so many things with financing you can get from the carbon market. So for example, if you're investing in the infrastructure to plant. A uh, hundred million trees, then we need equivalent, uh, proportionately sized infrastructure to say process the produce that we have, or cold storage, or market linkages. Now, all of this is not unable to be met right now with carbon revenues. So we need other forms of capital to participate and make a business case for that. And is is that corporates or is that kind of um, specific financial yeah, products? It's it's everything really. So. Corporations right now are mainly participating in carbon financing, mm-hmm. uh, but even capital markets to look at uh, that realm of private equity or venture capital to see what are the offers that can that can be presented to, to them. I mean, it's all about kind of enabling or trying to bring more of the private sector into your domain more quickly, so that these projects can start to you know propagate. Uh, far sooner because how long does it take for the land parcels to start to be productive from a carbon sequestration um, sense uh, because trees take time right how, how do you approach uh, it yeah so the transformation the trees above ground uh, it takes time for us to see the see the growth but a lot of uh, soil activity starts from day one below ground and on mm-hmm. ground so within if we're talking about forests within three years we can um, do the first measurement and start to potentially start to release carbon credit Mm -hmm. on the farms when we look at fruit and nut trees and certain other regenerative agriculture activities it can be within the year can you access like a higher quality carbon credit uh, price because of your work around biodiversity and having you know many species rather than monocrops etc yes I mean, there's more and more uh, awareness in the in the bio community about mm-hmm. these things. So yes, absolutely, it's it's moving in the right direction, and that's what we intend to do. Moving forward, what where do you see the opportunity uh, with the work that you're doing? How how can we bring more investors into this space? And and who are the people that you you, t- you typically work with to um, initiate kind of a project scoping? Yeah, so project scoping is sort of a very uh, you know almost defined technical exercise where our first contact is with the communities, with the local stakeholders, so the non-profits working in a certain area, the local governments, 
and we do uh, this initial scoping in collaboration with usually these sets of stakeholders. Then it kind of gets gets us a basic in-house feasibility, viability of these projects. And that's when, you know, we would do a feasibility study with experts to see what can be the carbon potential according to if these projects were to be registered, according to the needs of the standards like VERA, gold standards, so on. That's when a project becomes investment ready. It can be, there are various models of investing for corporations who may look at upfront funding or they may look at certain lock-in periods and so on and so forth. And these are usually corporations, Raf, that would look at financing these projects in exchange for carbon credits. Mm-hmm. And that's how a project cycle would flow. And yeah. once the uh, assets, the investment is secured for restoration activities through a carbon registered carbon project, mm-hmm. is that's when, um, you know, around about that time when we can start to model other economic activities uh, in that region and make those offers to impact investors and other, other commercial investors. And is it all kinds of companies or is it specific sectors where you see the most appetite or most engagement at the moment? I mean, we don't, we are agnostic of which company that we work with as long as it's a fair price mm-hmm. and it's not extractive. Right now, we see a lot of oil and gas industry um, obviously uh, dominating the space for this. Mm-hmm. for their need for carbon credits. Uh, but it's more a case of what's the what's the fair price for the project. It's across the board, really. And where, you know, what's your goals uh, with Hasten? Do you have a specific goal around the amount of carbon you're trying to sequester or land you're trying to change? Is there something you guys hope to achieve in the next, um, you know, by 2030 or, or 2050? Are you aligning to the SD, SDG targets or, or is this um, uh, purely kind of <laughs> case by case? No, absolutely. We've set ourselves targets. We need to have a North Star 2050, God knows. <laughs> we're, working, we're working towards 2030. And we've set ourselves a target of 10 million hectares worldwide uh, and we need to we need to figure a way out to reach that target that would be amazing well i i really hope uh that that you guys continue to do the exceptional work that that you're doing in india in india and beyond thank you so much for uh for coming on the show and appreciate your time and i really look forward to tracking your work and introducing um hopefully people to hasten to help drive things forward um in india and beyond thank you Raf.